whenever I think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit and, and particularly preaching on that, I'm reminded of the privilege I had many, many year, years ago of hearing uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul preach on this subject. He preached on this at a commencement, actually a baccalaureate service. Uh, it was a service at uh, a college in western Pennsylvania of which our, our brother Vince is an alumnus. Uh, and this college has um, a motto. The motto is in Latin. And Dr. Sproul, who is uh, being a very learned man, appropriately took the motto as his point of departure. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't attend to it as closely as he might. Uh, but in the motto, he discerned that part of the motto uh, was pro Christo, with Christ, and then another part he understood to refer to the Father. And so he preached this commencement, or, or this baccalaureate sermon, on uh, that apparently the college had, had forgotten about the Spirit, and that this, uh, while he wasn't necessarily criticizing the, the motto, he felt that everybody should be reminded that the Spirit was, was really important as well. And it preached a very fine sermon on, on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and then went and sat back down next to the president of the college, uh, who leaned over to him and whispered in his ear, and though not, I don't suppose so many there knew exactly what, what had uh, taken place, uh, after he whispered uh, in Dr. Sproul's ear for about 10 seconds, R.C. just threw his hands up and rolled his eyes and then put his head in his hands, and, uh, and then he looked up and smiled, uh, because the, the motto in Latin, it was not pro Christo et Patri, Christ and the Father, but there was one little more letter in the Latin word, pro Christo et Patria, which is not father, but fatherland, meaning country. So the motto of the college is for Christ and country. And he realized that the, the whole premise of his sermon was based on a, uh, a Latin reading. I mean, this is a man who did his PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam in the, in the Netherlands, learned Dutch to do it, which is a very hard language, uh, and, and actually knew if he had paid close, closer attention. So not many people, I'm sure, remember the, the, the weight of the sermon, but they all remembered. You know, it's important not to, uh, not to miss the details. It was very, I thought, a very powerful message for graduates going out, you know, that you know, the devil is in the details of life. And also that even the smartest of people goof up sometimes, and we could all learn some humility, which I've which I thought was uh, sort of ironic, but also kind of the way the Holy Spirit often teaches us, that we learn uh, that it, it is not uh, our wisdom that shapes people, it's often our mistakes that makes the, the more lasting and truthful lesson. Our text today is from the Gospel, Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 15, starting at verse 26. And there it goes. or at least it should. It's supposed to be buzzing. If, uh, if you're able from the booth to put up uh, the first uh, slide, if not, I'll, there it is. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. 
I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. If you could advance the slide. I chose the, this uh, reading was from the ESV, which uh, begins, When the Helper Comes. I chose the ESV because it translates John's designation for the Holy Spirit as helper. The word that uh, is translated here, the word that John is using, literally means uh, one who is called alongside. Some, you know, some... uh, Someone who stands at your right hand, as it, as it were. And if you do a quick survey of English translations, you get a sense of the various ways this uh, word is nuanced. So that in the, for example, if you recall the King James Version, uh, it is the comforter. In the Revised Standard Version, also the Christian Standard Version, it is the counselor. In the New Revised Standard Version, it is advocate. The same word, of course, appears in 1 John, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. All of these are are fine translations. I I use the ESV because I think helper is uh, the most nonspecific and allows us to to hear from the text how that might be nuanced so that if if we bear witness and find ourselves in the dock giving a defense of ourselves, it's good to know that we have an advocate who is there in relationship to our witness. The disciples at the moment of this particular deliverance are deeply cast down and discouraged, so the King James comforter makes a very good sense. They are also confused, so uh, counselor, you can appreciate that, but this is... uh, this is another example of how, how the Apostle John likes to use terminology that is potentially ambiguous, not to be confusing, but to lead us into deeper reflection on all of the grace that we have in Christ. Let's move on then to uh, verses 5 and 11. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Just comment briefly uh, as we read through that uh, we, often, we often think, and how, how often uh, do we not reflect at, at times that if only Jesus were here to help us, If only Jesus were here in person with us uh, to help us in our mission to speak to all that he has done, things would be so much easier. Things would go so much better, would they not? 
But this portion that we have read, uh, Jesus says, I tell you the the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. This is the better arrangement. This is the the best arrangement. Uh, Jesus is carrying on his mission through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is the very best possible arrangement, the strategy most consistent with God's great mercy and his utter holiness. And it also reminds us that our mission is to bear witness. It is not our mission to convict people of sin. It is not our mission to put people in terror of the day of judgment. We are to bear witness in word and deed to what God has done in Christ to spare and restore a lost and broken world. The Holy Spirit will convict people of sin. The Holy Spirit will bring the weight of judgment day and accountability to bear upon people's hearts. Well, the last portion of the scripture today is verses 12 and 13. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Amen. In these verses, we're reminded that Jesus did not say everything to his disciples that they needed to hear while he was among them. There was still more for them to understand, more for them to learn. And in this particular instance, in this particular moment, it was because they were not in a frame of mind to even hear or to bear what Jesus had to say. But Jesus gives them this assurance that his Holy Spirit will make his will clear to them uh, in due course uh, down through time. If you read on in the text, Jesus makes it explicit that the Spirit, uh, that's in in verses 14 and and following, the Spirit will take from what belongs to Jesus and hand it on to us. So for most of its history, and indeed down through history, the church has understood the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be uh, drawing out the implication of the teaching of Jesus so that the church may continue to be faithful to his his call and his mandate in new situations. Now, this phrase, uh, I haven't told you everything. Uh, In due course, the Spirit will come and the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Uh, While it is a great comfort and encouragement to us about the reliability of the Christian tradition, about the authenticity of, of the faith that the church has held down through the ages, it has also been the, uh, uh, the gap, the opening in the tent door by which heresy, just the, the camel of heresy keeps sticking its nose in. Uh, the spirit will guide you into all truth. There's more truth out there. Uh, it's not there in the Bible, but the spirit will help us all find it. Uh, one example that some of you may recall, some of you may be old enough to remember when the PCUSA, for example, along with many other churches, discovered situation ethics back in the 60s and 70s. Back in the uh, 
the mid-1970s, uh, mid the, the PCUSA had a commission on human sexuality, and it, it caused quite a stir at the time, because among the, the many recommendations in, that this commission brought to the General Assembly was, was one that the, the church should recognize that uh, there are situations in which adultery is not necessarily a bad thing. And the particular language, and some of you may recall this, uh, was that if the parties involved are open and above board about it, in other words, that it's not done you know, in secret, there's no hiding or deception going on, that if that condition holds, and if it brings true joy to everyone involved, then, then we should recognize that this is okay. And this is, this is part of the Holy Spirit, you know, taking things that Jesus didn't tell us at the time, but that he would have intended, you know, if he were here today, he would have said that because that's, that's what the Spirit does in taking the things of Christ and making them known to us. Jesus didn't get a chance to tell us all that uh, was, was latent in his teaching. And that's just one example. Uh, and I, I choose it because it's sort of within the mainstream of Christianity uh, to say nothing about the things that are out there on the fringes of the historic faith. I'd also like to, to give you uh, an example from more ancient times, and if we could have the next slide up there. This is by St. Augustine, uh, one of the ancient uh, Latin fathers of the church, uh, Bishop of Hippo. Uh, in his homilies on the Gospel of John, commenting on this phrase, guiding us into all truth, uh, St. Augustine quotes from two places in St. Paul, and he says, Be therefore renewed in the spirit of your mind and understand what the will of God is, Romans 12, and uh, which is good, acceptable, and perfect, that rooted and grounded in love, this is from Ephesians, you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the length and breadth and height and depth, even to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. For in such a way will the Holy Spirit teach you all truth when he shall shed abroad that love evermore and more largely in your hearts. And this is a, the ending of a section in the homilies where uh, Augustine uh, takes to task many in the church who were using this verse as a, a, a pretext for, for sexual licentiousness. So it, it is, it's a recurring sort of thing, and we should not be surprised that, uh, that variations on the theme keep happening uh, down, down through time. But as, uh, as we look at this text this morning, I'd like to refer to three areas in which I, I believe the text speaks uh, powerfully to our encouragement. And the first of them is in the matter of witness-bearing, which is usually a, a fearful and uh, uh, tr troubling topic to us because we all feel inadequate to witness. None of us feel like we have the real gifts to, to, bear, to bear witness. Uh, that we, uh, to do this, we need a program or, or we need to hire somebody who's, who's better at it than we are. Uh, but Jesus saying to his disciples here, I think should fill us with great hope because in the first place, it is the Spirit who witnesses. He says the Spirit, the helper that the Father is going to send, he will bear witness 
and you also should bear witness. So that when, when we contemplate our call to bear witness in word and deed, it's not that, oh, we have to go out and, and break up the ground. We have to go out and clear the forest and all of that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit is already there. So I would just encourage you to consider your capacity, the, the capacities, the opportunities that God gives you to witness. I'll start first with a, a celebrity, not because being a celebrity gives you a, a leverage to witness, but I think this particular celebrity points us to leveraging character. So if you think, well, how, how can I witness? You can witness by becoming a person of uh, deep Christian character. And your, your character will pave the way for you to, uh, to speak uh, to others in, in a way which may gain a hearing. How, how many of you, well, if there are NFL football fans out there, how many of you know the name Frank Reich? Not, not someone that you would probably cheer for if you're a Browns coach, but Frank, Frank Reich is the coach of the Indianapolis Colts. Not so many people know that he is an ordained minister of the Presbyterian Church in America. Not so many people know that he was for a time the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Uh, a man of deep faith. If you hear him, you know, if you hear the people interview him after the games, if you're a Christian, you can probably pick up from his language that he is a Christian, but he's not preachy. He doesn't use his celebrity status to grab the microphone and say, you know, uh, you need to accept Jesus into your heart or something like that. But you can, you can only imagine the impact that he has on, on uh, uh, men whose, whose celebrity prevents them from sort of becoming a normal church member in a church like yours. I mean, a lot of them are, and sometimes just being in, in an ordinary church is the safest place for them. But Frank Reich is a man who, by his character, uh, has, has these avenues of opportunity to share the gospel with people who are able to do a lot with their wealth for good. The other thing that I would suggest about witness bearing is you might be able to leverage your brokenness. Your brokenness. The trials and tribulations that come into your life, those can be areas in which God may be, by the Spirit, really preparing you and calling you to witness. My, um, my brother's wife uh, passed away, oh, it's been maybe 10, 12 years now, uh, after a long battle with cancer. And she was, I mean, she was a very delightful lady. She did have a very acerbic tongue in certain settings. Uh, but she developed a cancer and, and battled for about six years. And during that time, her character changed pretty, you know, that aspect of her character pretty well disappeared. And during the last years of her life, the, um, the, the people in the oncology department at which, where she was being treated would phone her up and say, you know, we have a new patient and they are really struggling with their diagnosis. Would, would you be willing to come in and visit with her? And you know, this, this big hospital system has chaplains on, you know, all over the place. And not that they didn't use the chaplains, but 
she once confided in me, she said, you know, I have, I have had more chances to share the gospel with people. She said, I'm not thankful for my cancer, but it's, uh, I've had more conversations with people about the gospel in this than I've had in the first 55 years of my life. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone will experience illness in this way. I'm just giving examples of the things in our lives that we wouldn't think uh, are platforms for witness. But, but character and brokenness are two things that the Spirit can use to make us uh, witness where the Spirit is already witnessing and breaking the ground. The second thing that I would uh, suggest for our encouragement in the promise that the Spirit will guide us into all truth is confidence in the faith that has been delivered to us. Confidence that the, uh, the teaching of the apostles is a true reflection of the, of the uh, history of or the, uh, the ministry of Jesus and its meaning so that in the events that they record that we can be confident that the, these are trustworthy narratives, if, if you will, of what Jesus did and taught. And likewise, that in the interpretation of, well, well, so what? I mean, there are a lot of folks that you know, say, well, even if Jesus rose from the dead, so what? What would that mean? The apostles, of course, declare what it means, that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that uh, there is no other name given under heaven by which we are to be saved. You could go on. But uh, the promise that the Spirit would guide the apostles, that's whom Jesus spe is speaking to in the immediate context, is, gives us confidence uh, in the reliability of what's been entrusted to us. It also should make us confident in the, the Lord's providential preservation of the truth down through the ages because it is, it is constantly uh, subject to attempts to revise it. That was happening in the days of the apostles. Most of the letters in the New Testament, either directly or indirectly, uh, indicate that people have been twisting the message. People have been representing the story of Jesus, if you will, in a different light. And they are there to correct those, to set people uh, back uh, to the the message as it came to them from Christ and as they have uh, delivered it to the church. So when, when the church down through the ages, when the church around the world gathers together and says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and then goes on, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, and where, where the middle section recounts the saving work of Christ, his death, uh, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again in glory, we give thanks that the Spirit will guide you into all truth. And one other, uh, one other aspect of that that I'll mention uh, just briefly in terms of the Spirit uh, guiding us into all truth the, the missionary enterprise is always cross-cultural, which means that it's, it's tremendous, there's a tremendous obstacle, there's a tremendous barrier, if you will, in moving a message from one culture into another. That happens in the New Testament because the gospel 
is uh, something that happens among people who speak Aramaic. And when, it, when the message goes out into the world, in fact, when it's written down, it's written for us in Greek. And the, uh, those are two different cultural worlds. The, the missionaries are, for the most part, bilingual. So they have a foot in both cultures and are able to, to bridge that movement. But it is a, it is a hard barrier to do because uh, there is no such thing as sort of a one-for-one -one translation from one language into another. We like to think, oh, what's learning new language? You, you, get, you learn the grammar and you get a dictionary and you find the English word and you plug in the other word, but that's not how it works. Language, language is something that, by which we categorize the world. Language is the, the, are the spectacles through which we see and interpret the world. And what, whatever your language is will make you look for certain things and not other things. Anyone know how many, how many words the Inuit Eskimo have for snow? How many words do you have for snow? Snow is snow, right? The Inuit Eskimo have 17 words for snow. And based on what's coming down, they can say, oh, well, that's such and such. And, uh, you know, if you make your living, living above the Arctic Circle, if you survive among, above the Arctic Circle, there's value in being able to, I guess, to distinguish different kinds of snow. Uh, but that's, they, if you learn to speak that language, you have to learn to distinguish between 17 different kinds of snow. And that, I'm just giving some trivial examples. Uh, I lived in Scotland for eight years. There's at least four different Scottish words for drizzle. You know, it's always coming down, and I never learned to distinguish them, but everybody there seemed to know which was which. You know, if you, if you look at a, a map where rainfall is in colors, you have the Amazon is purple and Scotland is purple. So precipitation's a big thing. You learn to see the world through your language. If you, if you speak Spanish or have studied Spanish, two different words for the English word to be, and you have to know when do I, when do I use ser, when do I use estar. You just have to learn the world differently. So when you, when you translate something from one language to another, you're not just plugging in words. You have to, you're plugging in a different way of seeing the world. And you have no certainty that what you think you're saying is going to be understood in the way that, uh, that you hope it's understood. Because people have different lenses for interpreting the world. The Spirit will guide you into all truth, I think also is an assurance that however imperfectly our translation comes along, the Spirit will see to it that the substance of, of what we have received and the substance of what other people receive from us or others will conform to the intent of the saving work of Christ. Do you know where most missionaries in Mexico or in Latin America come from? Korea. So Koreans learned Christianity from American missionaries mainly at the end of the Second World War. And now the Korean church, which is one of the biggest missionary sending churches in the world, is sending missionaries out. And so you have Spanish speakers learning about Jesus from people whose native language is Korean. Pretty remarkable. And it would be a hopeless enterprise were it not the case that the Holy Spirit has promised to guide uh, the disciples of Jesus, into all truth. Well, I'm going to uh, close by uh, one, one final comment, and that, that's simply to, to consider 
how, this, how the Spirit stirs us up uh, for ministry. Jesus says, I have a lot to tell you, but you're not ready for it now. You're not ready for it now. Right now, you're, you're too caught up in your own grief. You're not ready to hear this now. And that points us to something pretty fundamental about how, how God works, how the Lord works with his disciples. That the Lord brings his disciples on uh, according to their preparedness to take the next step or according to their being in a position where they're able to, to hear what they need to do at this point or what they need to be able to do next. And we all experience this in, in the world, in, in day-to-day living, that uh, you teach people when they're able. If you, have, if you have children, if you have children, you're pretty attentive to, well, what are they, what, what are they doing now that they didn't do yesterday or a month ago? Uh, what are they ready for now? And, and in, in our society, you know, you can go to the some, you know, you can go to the health department. They'll give you a chart of what your kid ought to be able to do at such and such an age if they're in a, you know, the the big bell curve. Uh, but we're we're always attentive. What what are they ready for? And this is how the Lord works uh, in us and by and, and among us by His Spirit, and that is the the grace of God to us that He that God uh, figures out where we are. He knows where we are, and he knows what, what the next step can be. He knows what, they're ready, he knows what we're ready to be able to, to work on, if you will. Uh, that, that, of course, has to be balanced against the fact that, that we, are no, we are notoriously slow uh, and that we prefer not to do what we should have been ready to do long ago. Hebrews says... Uh, the writer to Hebrews says, I have a lot to teach you. There, by now, you should be ready to take on advanced lessons, and I have to go back and teach you the ABCs again, which is not a good thing. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses is speaking to the next generation of the Israelites to go into the Promised Land, and he said, you've, you've seen all of God's great and mighty works in Egypt, but you still don't have... Uh, a mind to understand, or eyes to see, or a, ears to hear, or a heart to believe. So there is, um, there is the reality that God, God prepares us in, in all sorts of ways, and we just don't pick up on it. We aren't even interested in learning. We already know what we know. But there is, uh, in Jesus' words, a reminder that uh, where we are is where he meets us, and the point from which he will lead us on. You're not ready for this now, but a time will come when you're ready and the Holy Spirit will lead you into the next step. How can church leaders recognize what the people are ready to do and to hear? And in my experience, church leaders rarely ask this question. It's a question that in order for church leaders to ask it, they already need to have mastered the principles of grace and truth. Uh, that those, are the, uh, those two things held together are what leaders have to have in order to even discern things. Churches typically, typically do not ask the question, what are people ready for? They just find some program and say, this will solve it, no matter where the people are or what the people are ready to do. I would say that, uh, although it's, there are many things that could be said along these lines, that the most basic principle is that the Holy Spirit uh, identifies the people that are ready, 
by stirring up within them a desire to learn, a desire to do. And usually this does not happen at the magnitude of, or critical mass at which you can launch a program. It typically happens at the magnitude of two or three. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. How many people did the Holy Spirit use to start the world missionary movement? To, to begin the whole notion that maybe we should leave Palestine and take the gospel to another country. How many people did the Holy Spirit recruit for that? What program did he line up for that? He called two guys, Saul or, or Paul and Barnabas. And the church prayed and fasted and laid hands on them and sent them away. That's, that's often how the Spirit works. And if uh, faithfulness to the mission, if renewal appropriate to the time and place and context happens, usually it's because the Spirit stirs up two or three and leaders are able to recognize that. And even though it may be a, a little different, in grace and truth, they will pray and fast and, and send them off. Pentecost. Really exciting. Really transformative. Walk in step with the Spirit. Let the Spirit break up the ground, and where the Spirit goes, you go and open your mouth and speak of Jesus and see what God does. Lord, uh, write these words on our hearts. Uh, make us aware of, uh, of your strength, uh, using what little we may bring, and what great things you may do to your name's honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.